service. Not that I shouldn't have that every Sunday, but I have specifically for this Sunday. I, I really believe that there is some clarification that's going to help, that's going to come forth, that's going to help you personally. I don't have a, I won't be able to spend a lot of time building a doctrinal basis, but kind of in a nutshell as to why we're a part of the fellowship that we're a part of and a belief system that we hold to very dearly. And I think it's going to help you. It's going to help you feel, even if you don't feel good about who you are and where you are and what you're part of, I think it's going to help you see the bigger picture here today, okay? How many know that's important? Amen. Sometimes to just see the bigger picture and just say, you know, I, I, I really am a part of something that God is doing. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we have set our hearts and our minds and our affections towards you, and we pray today, God, that all of our attention to will turn to the word of God. I ask today that there be nothing to, re, to, to hinder thy word, that it would come forth with great clarity. As I have prayed in my private devotion, Father, I pray it publicly today in using words that are familiar to me. Let preaching be easy in this house today. And may your Holy Spirit have great liberty, Father. And let the message not be the culmination or the conclusion, but let it be a part of the transition into what you want to do, God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And you can be seated. Thank you. You know, I was thinking, I'm going to share with you a few of my personal devotions for a few moments before we get into a doctrinal content. This particular past week, I was able to spend some time kind of in a reflection, thinking about both our church locally, churches locally, where we fit in the big picture, and uh, in, in what God is doing in Heber Springs, what's he doing in our communities uh, surrounding us, being very careful not to compare. You have to be very careful because there's a tendency in the natural mind to compare your church numerically against other churches. And if you do so, then you can be diminished unless you've got the largest church. You'll feel diminished. You'll feel devalued as if perhaps you're missing a part of your purpose. And, you know, I think that being a part of the church is a great thing. I, a lot of people do not love the church, and they, there's a lot of negative connotations. But personally, I love the church. I love the whole component from our worship to our fellowship to our friendship and experiences and I was thinking about what kind of draws people to a particular body what you know in one sense we all need a sense of belonging it's a poor uh, analogy but I remember years ago when I was a, a kid you know and I wouldn't as I was an adult but it's because a different moment I remember the old cheer song that they sang as they went to the bar we, we want to go somewhere where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. In one sense, we need that in the fellowship. Come on, somebody. We need a sense of belonging. And, you know, there are a lot of different reasons why you have felt like you want to be a part of First Assembly. Because on a kind of on a weekly basis, you know, you, you, you make that known. Uh, it, maybe it is fellowship. Maybe it is just the unity and the, the communion that we feel when we're together. You know, special moments that, that we obtain together. Maybe it is a defined purpose that you have discovered while you have been here. Or maybe it is a, a part of being a community effort. Maybe there's something that you say, you know, I'm, I'm joining not just necessarily this church, but if a part of other churches. When people, why do they join? Maybe they want to go to that church because that church is real community 
oriented. They're really working hard. And there's some churches in our community that are real community-minded. I mean, they are, they're, they're boots on the ground, so to speak. They're doing the dirty work. They're just out there, you know, knocking on doors, and they're, and they're, and they're running certain ministries. And so people feel a sense of belonging there, and they want to be a part of it. And maybe you receive benevolence from a particular church, this church or another church, and that, that act of love was just enough to show you that, you know what, God really cares. Right? Somebody extended a compassionate hand to you during a difficult time, and that marked you in a special way. Or for some of you, that draws you to this fellowship or other fellowships. It's just tradition. But, you know, sometimes tradition gets a bad name in the church, and we think, you know, that all traditions are bad. All traditions are not bad. We're here out of tradition. It was the path of our forefathers that trod in this valley long before we got here today. And, and so we may not look the same, we may not dress the same, and they may have came riding a mule down the mountain, and we may have come in a Lexus today. doesn't matter, but it's still a tradition that we're following, you know. And so, but I wondered about, is there, is there ever a moment when you're pulled together into the fellowship of the body that, that, the, that, the, that the, the thing that's magnetic to you is doctrine? Is there ever a moment where all the other things, as good as they are, but you say, at the core, is there a doctrinal belief? If not, I want to challenge you. That really needs to be the most important. And that is that you are uniting yourself with men and women of a like, precious faith. That as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, he said, I write unto you that you speak the same thing. That there is a common unity of doctrinal belief. You know, I recently had some contemplations on various fellowships that, uh, in our local area, and, and I thought about how successful that they have been, and some of them are new. Some of them have sprung up um, in the last 10 to 12 years in our area, and God has really blessed them. And, and I am very thankful for the great works and effort that they have made. Every church is unique. Every church has its own, has its own flavor. And again, in the natural tendency, when you look at churches that may have been here for a much shorter time, but have exceeded our present congregation numerically, then you have a tendency, if you're not careful in a carnal mind, to look at what they have and think that maybe you need to do what they did, because in order for you to get the numbers that they've got, maybe you need to replicate. That's a common trap that a lot of people fall into. Because, let me tell you, again, we're judged a lot of times based upon our numerical attendance. But I learned years ago that you can't just judge the strength of a church, come on, by its external numbers. And you can't just judge, you know, the heartbeat of a fellowship, whether or not it is the largest church in town. You know, Israel was a small people that God set his eye on. Come on, somebody. David was just a young man when he walked down the valley with a sling in his hand, and he was triumphant over a giant that was much larger than he. And so I thought to myself for a moment, you know, as powerful as these thoughts were, as, as these churches are, I thought about myself, and I reflected upon the call that God put on my life when he brought me into a doctrinal belief and into a people that I would fellowship with, and I found myself valuing, not in a prideful sense, not in a sense of arrogancy, but in a, in a, in a heartfelt gratitude and appreciation for the people called the Assemblies of God. 
Now, if you don't know my journey, I'm not going to spend time taking you into the depth of that journey today. But for years, when I was with Pastor Burton at MacArthur Assembly, I had not joined the assemblies. I was attending the church. I was a part of the church. I was actively involved. But I did not know if that's the journey that I would make towards ministry ordination. I didn't know. I was already ordained through a non-denominational fellowship. But I made a trip one night with the men as we went to what was called a Light for the Lost Banquet. And it was at a place, I believe it was called Cloverdale Assembly of God. It was right adjacent to the district headquarters there in southwest Little Rock. And that particular night, a missionary by the name of David Grant. Now, many of you that have been part of the Assemblies of God for a long time, you know Brother David. And David worked for years and years and years in the streets of India. Uh, new Mother Teresa and all those things, Calcutta, India. And, and when he began to share about what they did on those, in the streets of India towards the poor and the impoverished and the orphans and the, and the moms and the widows that, and, and how that they reached out to the hurting and the broken, in that moment of time, I saw more than a denomination. I saw more than a sign on a building. I saw more than just a church building or bus with a, a name placard on, on its side. I saw people that had a passion for Jesus, had a love for people, would reach out to them and would, would cross the waters and go to foreign soil to spend their life's blood for the cause of Christ. I started weeping uh, uncontrollably. I'm talking about we drove home. I was still weeping. When I got in my vehicle, I wept. When I got to my house, Sherry was pregnant. I know that surprises you a lot. That's why she didn't go. She was pregnant. She was laying on the bed. I sat beside her that night. I'm in the United States Air Force force. I'm, I'm sobbing as I'm speaking to her, but I knew at that moment God was calling me to be a part of the assemblies of God, to be a part of a fellowship that was far bigger than I was, that had a history and a root. And I don't want to take you, I'm not going to try to take into all the root of the history of the assemblies of God, but it's a powerful thing. The numbers alone are staggering just to think that since 1914, a group of men and women that began as 300, you know, delegates from around the nation and a few from foreign countries that would come to Hot Springs, Arkansas from April the 2nd to April the 12th to form a new fledging fellowship in the midst of the Pentecostal revival for a five-fold purpose that I won't talk about today of why they came together, that from that humble beginnings that now we are the world's fourth largest singular body of Christian denomination, 70 million plus adherents will worship somewhere today around this world in a building under the title of the Assemblies of God. And we have seen such a, an amazing, I mean, in not perhaps in the United States, the numbers in the United States over th around 3 million, the 10th largest fellowship, but around the world, it's almost unmatched again in its, in its brief history to have reached so many people because of a, 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 of a vision for missions. And we'll talk more about that later. But, but I want to take uh, just for a moment of time to tell you about the assemblies for just a second. There is the, the reason why most ministers join the assemblies of God. We join because of a core set of beliefs that's called the 16 fundamental truths. Many of you know them. In that 16 fundamental truths is what's also called the cardinal truths, the core beliefs. They're really, they're all important, but there is a core belief. There are four things that are called the cardinal beliefs. And, and, and this is the order that they're, they're historically shared. And it's first that there is, um, there is salvation and there's divine healing. And then there's baptism in the Holy Spirit. And there's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the next four weeks, I'm going to highlight these four cardinal truths. But I'm not going to go in that historical order. But today, 
for a few moments, I'm going to highlight to you about fundamental truth number seven and number eight because I'm telling you, that's still a part. And also number 10, that's a part of why I'm here today. That's a part of why you're here today. And that is in our hearts, we have a belief in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We are not what is known by theologians as cessationists. And that is, we do not believe that the manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit as recorded in both the book of Acts and also in the epistles, that it ceased, in essence, cessationists, that it ceased with the last apostle, the death of the last apostle, or the coming of the canon of Scripture. But we believe that in the words of the apostle Peter that were preached on that fateful day of Pentecost, that the promise is unto you, your children, and your children's children, as many as the Lord our God should call. Now, that doctrine is not exclusive to the assemblies of God. That is held by all of our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, wherever men and women uh, gather together in fellowship and believe that God is is still pouring his spirit out upon all flesh. And I'll tell you what, I don't believe that we have even scratched the surface of all that God is destined first assembly in Hebrews Springs for. There's still much, much more. And I want to say this, but at the core of our belief, uh, again, in a, not in a comparison, but in a, in a measure of an analogy of the other churches and their purposes, perhaps that first assembly is a church that is not necessarily clannish and we're not cultish in any capacity as Many times Pentecostal churches in days gone by in hill country, areas like our area would often be and would be labeled. But we are a fellowship where people respect you. Come on, you are people in prominent positions and in prominent responsibilities. You are upstanding citizens. People know they can trust in you. And yet all the while, come on, you know how to get your groove on. Come on, somebody. You know how to let the Spirit of God move in our midst. So maybe while these other churches have different purposes, maybe our purpose is still in line with that faithful group of men and women that came together in Hot Springs, Arkansas to form this fellowship. And one of those reasons is, is that we can give it an attention. In a moment's time, I'm going to highlight the 7th and the 8th. I want to go to the 10th, if I can, for just a moment real quickly, of the fundamental truths, just real quickly today. I'll go back to seven and eight quickly, but I'm going to just, this is in the language of the fundamental truths. Now, I know it's very doctrinal, but I'm telling you, these men wrote from an, in, uh, not a necessarily an inspiration like in the biblical days, but they had an understanding. And this is called the church and its mission. And it talks about that the body of Christ, we come together with divine appointments. It's an integral part of the general assembly. I'm going very quickly because I'm going to take you to a purpose. That God's purpose concerning man is to seek and to save that which is lost, to be worship by man to build a body of believers in the image of his son and to demonstrate his love and compassion for the all for all the world and the priority reason for being of the assemblies of god as a part of the church is this right here flip over if you can to be an agency or for evangelizing the world to be a corporate body in which man may worship god to be a channel of god's purpose to build a body of saints we need one another we've got to sharpen one another encourage one another got to be who god calls you to be you can't worship you can worship god alone but you can't consistently worship god alone without the aid of other people god has united us together we want to be a people who demonstrate god's love and compassion for all the world now catch these next few words real quickly if you can the assemblies of god exist expressly this 
This was the belief in the men and women, not in 1914, but it was later in 1916 and 1970 when they actually began to form the fundamental truth. But they had a belief at, at the time that God was pouring his spirit out in the early days of, of the 1900s that the assemblies of God was being raised up to give continuing emphasis for this reason for being in the New Testament apostolic pattern by teaching and encouraging believers to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So catch what they're saying. They're saying, we believe that this fellowship has been chosen by God to give continual emphasis. Why the need for continual emphasis? Because without the, without the accomplishment of the continual emphasis, we will be one generation from not having the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. That's all it will take. It, all it will take was to be a church that values everything we do other than to receive the unction and the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then as everybody that has received the baptism dies, we'll have the shell of what we used to be. We'll go through the motions. We'll have worship. We'll have preaching. We'll still have a pulpit and a pew. But what we won't have is the power of the Holy Spirit Come on, at the level that we know God wants to manifest his power in our midst. And so let me just kind of catch up for just a moment. I was thinking in my person, I was sitting there at my desk and I was reflecting and I was looking. It was about 11 p.m. at night, which that's late for me to be studying because when I study late, I'm gone. And so as I was studying and was reading and was reflecting, I'm telling you, church family, and I don't go it, I'm not an emotional person, but the emotions that I felt in 1993 when I came to that Light for the Lost banquet and I knew that God was confirming that I needed to join the Assemblies of God, I haven't thought about those emotions in a long time, but I was suddenly overwhelmed with those same feelings. And I just remembered, I said, God, these other churches are great and they're good and you've got a distinct call and, and I don't want to try to measure our church up against them. That would be the wrong thing to do. But the thing that you called First Assembly in Hebrew Springs to do and to be is a fellowship that believes in the baptism and the Holy Spirit and the unctions and the anointings of God and not be ashamed of it and not be ashamed to say that we believe in speaking with other tongues. We believe in the initial evidence and the baptism. We believe in the gift of tongues that needs interpretation. We believe in prophecies and all the other gifts that starts, it begins when believers receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And for the sake of time, I won't read all of these here, but in your own time, go back, go online to the Assemblies of God and bring up this uh, 16 fundamental truths and read them for yourself today, if you will, because I think it will encourage you to know that that's one of the things that we are unified in as a fellowship. I want to share with you how come it's so important that I take the time to do what I'm doing here today. Let's go to Acts chapter 19 for a few moments, and then we're going to come back to that. And we're going to transition quickly today because I want to have time certainly for prayer. I want to share with you why it's so important. This passage of Scripture is real unique. Now, if you are a student of the Word of God, you'll know that there are five recorded instances in the book of Acts when men and women received what was known as the baptism in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit came upon them or they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the last recorded instance in the book of Acts, and it is associated with the ministry of the apostle paul when he had gone to ephesus now a closer examination of not necessarily this text but in the earlier text in the 18th chapter this is the second time paul has come to ephesus now ephesus is was a, a certainly a gentile city it was a city that was its main 
its main focus of worship was a temple that had been built to a goddess, a pagan goddess called Diana. All the, the entire city, to a degree, worshipped there at that temple. When Paul went the first time, he did not stay very long. He only stayed perhaps for one or two weeks because he was itinerating. He had a, 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 a plan to go and then to return. This is his return. He had gone for just a week or two earlier, spoke at the synagogue, and then left, and now he's returned, uh, and he has returned turned back to his uh, back to Ephesus so it says it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus and he found certain disciples now here's what's unique let's read the second verse about this well we're gonna go through the probably the second and the third verse and then we'll try to put the picture together he said unto them have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed and they said unto him we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost now, and he said unto them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. And then he gives clarification. Fourth verse. We'll go ahead and read that and then allow me to add some clarification. So then said Paul, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now, let's take a moment and look at this theologically, if we can, just very carefully, for just a few moments of time. The Bible says that he found certain disciples. Now, the word disciples had a common usage in that time frame. It wasn't always just applicable to Christianity, as you and I are. We mostly think, when we think of disciples, we think first of the 12 disciples. But disciples simply meant, you know, a student. And there would always be a, uh, a teacher. And so in this passage, he said, we have found certain disciples. He discovers it doesn't tell us who was their leader. It doesn't tell us where their influence was. It doesn't tell us whether they were Jew or they were Gentile. But what the context creates for us is, is that they had some knowledge of Jesus. Now, some knowledge of Jesus is better than no knowledge of Jesus. Come on. But some knowledge of Jesus without a greater understanding of Jesus' redemptive work can cause you to be stuck at where you are because you'll be comfortable with this envy. You've got some revelation of who Christ is and you think that there is no additional revelation. These disciples, what that means if they are disciples, that means that they have a teacher. That means somebody has taught them about Christ, and he's taught them about Christ in the context of John's baptisms. John's ministry was very uh, impacting in the entire Middle Eastern climate, and it reached all the way to Ephesus. And so it seems as if they had been baptized in uh, accustomed to the way that John baptized. Remember how John baptized. John baptized in the promise that one day the Messiah would come, that he was even perhaps even here now and that they were baptized unto repentance, and they would bring forth a changed life. But they, so they knew about Jesus. Perhaps they knew that he had come. Perhaps they had heard about his miracles. I don't know. Did they know about his death, his burial, and his resurrection? I don't know. They had a limited knowledge of Jesus. Now, think about this for a moment of time. That limited knowledge of Jesus had been conveyed, conveyed to them by a minister like me that had a knowledge, but that was limited. He shared it with his pupils who are called disciples, and he brought them to a certain level of expectation that God is working in the sense of 
repentance. The Messiah is coming or has coming. The kingdom of God is here in the earth, and that's all they really knew. Did you know there are a lot of people that just have a little glimpse of Jesus, one little angle of Jesus, one little portion of Jesus, and they've never really gone any further into the depth of all that he came to accomplish when he bowed his head on that old cross. Come on, somebody. And so so Paul here said, now again, King James English says, have you, he started this conversation by saying, have you received the Holy Ghost? King James English. Now remember this, the word ghost in the original language is also pneuma, the same word translated spirit. The King James translators use ghost commonly. You and I don't use it today as commonly. But so in essence, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they're like, There are a lot of people in our culture today, a lot of people in Christianity, a lot of people have a faith and a belief in Jesus' death, but when it gets to the work of the Holy Spirit, this is where they're at. I don't know, I know, I know, but they just know only so much. So Paul said that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again, brought them into a fuller understanding. So he took them out and he baptized them in water. Let me tell you, the reason why that the assemblies of God exist is to give continuing emphasis to the baptism in the Holy Spirit because if we don't, what we're going to have is we're going to create a culture of believers akin to those that Paul discovered in Acts chapter 19. You're going to have a faith in Christ. You're going to have a measure of understanding of scriptures, but you're not going to have the experience that validates and that is validated by the doctrine. Your experience should come alongside and be in harmony with the doctrine. Are you hearing me today? But at the same time, your experience, you should be able to defend it by your doctrine and you should be able to defend your doctrine by your experience. And so with that experience, Paul had it. Ananias, Acts the ninth chapter, when Paul was blinded, because of seeing Christ on the Damascus road, he had spent three days without eating anything. Scales were on his eyes, but he was praying. And in a vision, he saw another disciple coming in and laying hands on him. And God spoke to a disciple named Ananias. He went to Saul, laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus that appeared to thee along the way has sent me that thou might receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he laid his hands on him and the scales fell off of Paul's eyes. And he suddenly saw that the Spirit of God had come and he was filled with the Holy Ghost and he had an experience now that he could validate by a doctrine. Come on, somebody. And so he knew in what he had believed and he was firmly and fully persuaded that what God promised, he was willing and able to perform. And when he stood in front of those men, he said, well, you were baptized according to John's baptism, but I'm going to baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. Jesus, who is the anointed one, I'm going to baptize you. And when he baptized them in water, and they get all dried up. I don't know what the climate was. Did they pray there on the bank of the river or the pond or the lake? I don't know. Or did they come back into a house of worship? Was the house a big house? Was it a small house? Were there candles flickering in the light or creating light in the night? Uh, or was it just simply a, a private devotion or a public? Ga- I don't know. But I know this. The Bible says fifth verse. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, sixth verse. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, they may have still been wet from the water. Come on, towel, hair, all. Come on now. Well, you know what? I won't even go into this, but they baptized naked back in those days. You just read about it in your history book. And so I'm sure he got them dressed first. That'd be a good thing. 
And so then Paul laid hands on them. Look what happened. And when he laid hands on them, come on now, the Holy Ghost came on them. And they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. They didn't go to the new converts class. They didn't read Kenneth Hagin's book. They didn't do anything like that. They had a man of God anointed by the Holy Spirit that stood in front of them that had a belief that if he laid his hands on people and there was a full assurance of faith, then what he had experienced, they would experience. What the original apostles experienced on the day of Pentecost, they would experience. And when that climate came together, his anointing and his equipping and his gifting with their faith and their willingness and their desire, then there was a release of the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues and began to prophesy glory to God. What a powerful experience that was. And I'm here to tell you that changed. The reason why I brought that up today is because if we fail to do what our original forefathers of the assemblies of God, uh, what they believed in, then we're going to raise up a generation that's going to look the same. It's going to have similar worship. We're going to have the sign on the building that calls us the assembly of God, but we won't have anybody among us that has experienced the biblical experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we, I believe with all of my heart, and I feel the pulse of God this morning to say, that's why God's called first assembly is because we have a priority reason for build, for being, to give continual emphasis, to never forget about it, to not put it in the back closet, to not be ashamed of it, to not feel like we have to hide it, don't be afraid when you bring your friend that somebody's going to get happier or start speaking. Yes, it's going to happen. Somebody's going to shout. Somebody's going to be heard praying in the Spirit. There are going to be utterances and prophecies. And if they want to go to church where there is no fire, they can go to the church where there is no fire. But if they're looking for more of God, if they want an anointing that will change their life, then we want to be the fellowship that keeps the fire of God presently available to all who will. Come on, somebody. That's the vision that God gave our spiritual forefathers. So before I close and before we pray, in just a moment of time, I'm 30 minutes in today. Let me tell you just real quickly, just a couple of nuggets about the baptism in the Spirit to encourage you, to encourage you. If you have already received, you know what your responsibility is? Stir up that gift of God. Come on, pray in the Spirit. Pray in your understanding. Come on, pray in your times. Pray when you don't feel something and pray something when you feel the Spirit of God upon you. It's not dependent upon your feeling. It's dependent upon your faith. Exercise the gift. Build up your most holy faith. Romans 8 says in the 26th verse, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit of God gives us utterances that cannot be uttered or understood. So we have an ability to commune with God in the Spirit that we cannot always articulate it in our known language. Come on, somebody. It's an unction. It's a groaning. It's an anointing. And the fundamental truth as rigid as that sounds. How many know that sounds very rigid? That sounds very religious. Fundamental truths. What do you mean by that? These authors captured the essence of the doctrine and of their experience and put it for us. Let's just follow it for just a moment today. If we can, run that down for me if you would, Angie, if you would up there. And fundamental truth number seven. Now, that's a lot. But let's just read it. All believers. Pastor, who's this for? Come on, somebody. That's our belief. 
It don't matter whether you're tall or short, black or white, male or female, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, doesn't matter, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, doesn't matter. If you're a believer in Christ, you're entitled to. Come on. Peter said this promise was to you, your children, and your children's children. But you've got to expect it and earnestly seek this promise of the Father. Very few times does it just happen if you're not desiring it. Come on, somebody. That was the normal experience of all in the early church. With it comes the endowment of power for life and service. It's the beginning. It's not the end. If I, could say, if I could say one level of criticism about the assemblies of God over the last 30 or 40 years is because we made it our end instead of our beginning. It should open us into the new depths of God's spirit, not just be our end, but it is our beginning. With it comes that endowment for power, life, and service. It's the bestowment of the gifts and their uses in the work of the ministry. Now, look at this. I don't have time to clarify it today. I've taught it in the past. But this experience is distinct from and subsequent to the new birth. When you were saved and born again, you received the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Bible says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. So we understand that there is a distinction in the works of the Holy Spirit. To be saved is to receive the regenerating power of the Spirit, but that does not mean that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? There's a distinction. You say, well, I don't understand that, Pastor. Then you're like Paul, scales are on your eyes, but there will come a day when those scales will fall off your eyes and you'll understand with great clarity. I understand it with great clarity. I remember before I received the baptism of the Spirit, I was saved. But after I received the baptism in the Spirit, I could discern the distinction. It's distinct from and subsequent to the new birth. With the baptism in the Spirit comes experiences such as fullness of the Spirit. Jesus said, come unto me and drink, for out of your belly shall flow a river of living water. Fullness of the Spirit. With the baptism comes also a deepened reverence for God. So, Pastor, you just told me a while ago that God doesn't do a comparison. Are you saying, Pastor Brown, that if I have the baptism and my neighbor doesn't have the baptism, let's use Julie and Dylan because they're on the front row. If Dylan has it and Julie doesn't, does that mean his reverence for God will be deeper than hers? Absolutely not. What it says is his personal experience will be deepened. Not saying it's a comparison in any capacity. I'm saying simply that your own personal experience will be deepened when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There'll be an intensified consecration to God. What does that mean? When you receive the baptism in the Spirit, it changes your perception of some of the things you used to do, some of the things you used to watch, some of the people you used to hang out with. Come on now. It does. There's a change that's worked inside you. Some of it is instantaneous. Some of it is progressive. But there is always a work and a change and a consecration in your life. It's a more active love for Christ, his word, and for the lost. Turn to the eighth one real quickly because these flow together. The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. This speaking in tongues in this instance very carefully chosen words are very important it's the same in essence as the gift of tongues but it is different in purpose and in use time will not allow me to teach i've taught upon that for many years now but i understand the distinction between the gift of tongues and the initial evidence so pastor brown you say well how do i know when i'm baptized in the holy spirit the spirit of god is like the wind how will i know i cannot see the wind i cannot see the spirit i can't see the wind but i can see its effect how did we know when we baptized baptized these few men and women uh, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. How did you know? Because they were wet. 
There was a tangible, visible, right? There was something that you could see a change had been worked in their heart and life. They were dry, they were submerged, and they were wet. And we believe that the biblical evidence that creates for you the knowledge that you have received the baptism in the Holy Spirit is that you will speak in other tongues in private devotion and perhaps even in public ministry. Does that make sense here today? It's a powerful thing. It's the thing that we are to be desired, that's to be desired. Let me say this as I'm preparing to close today, just real quickly, because I'm preparing to close, but not in ministry, just in preaching. I'm telling you, God gives you the utterance. You got to know this. If you say, Pastor, I'm, uh, I'm believing for this experience in my life, and I'm just waiting for God to just come over me and something to just shake me and move me and something to begin to speak my, my no, that's not the way it works. The Bible says God gives you the utterance, but you will do the speaking. God enables you. Let me give you an example of this. Many of you think about the exploits of God in the life of Samson. God took a skinny man like me called Samson. Now, he didn't look like these mass. I've told you that in the past. Because then it would be his natural ability. He was just a slim guy with a slightly pushed out belly like Pastor Brown hidden behind this black shirt. And the power of God came on him. But when he fought the lion, he fought the lion and then the power of God came upon him. Are you hearing me? He tore the gate off. It was him moving. The spirit didn't move. He was moved by the spirit, empowered by the spirit. He went to the gate and was enabled by the spirit. But he couldn't sit there motionless. He had to do what his part was. The spirit gives you the utterance, but you do the speaking. That's important that you understand. Now, and before we close, remember this. For the, the sake of your personal study, the principles of the gift of tongues apply to the initial evidence. It's the same in essence, but it differs in purpose. You say, Pastor, I was taught what happened on the day of Pentecost. They were preaching in languages that were known. But 1 Corinthians 14 and 2 says that you speak not to men, but in the spirit you speak mysteries because you're speaking to God. You are, in essence, prophesying in a, in a language of the Spirit. You are declaring the wonderful works of God. You are not foretelling, as in preaching, but you are telling of the wonderful works of God in an unknown language. You are not speaking with just your mind. You are speaking with your spirit. I want you to know that when you pray in tongues, your mind does not know what your spirit is praying. It's not as if you have a computer that is interpreting what you are saying, but you are trusting that the Spirit is praying the perfect will of God through you. You say, Pastor, is that important? It's very important because it takes faith. It takes faith because what you're saying, God, is I trust that the spirit inside of me knows the words that needs to be articulated in the natural realm that's heard audibly by the listening ear, but also heard in God's eternal kingdom. And so you have a moment of faith where you just simply say, God, I'm trusting you. Once you receive, and everybody here understands this principle right here, once you receive the initial baptism in the spirit, you will begin to grow in your understanding of the purpose of God. You'll begin to grow in your knowledge of speaking in other tongues. You'll begin to grow in your familiarity to it. Sometimes the first time you speak in other tongues, it's very unfamiliar to you. 
Come on, somebody. Sometimes it's not that fluent flow that you hear others. If you pray beside me and you're in an altar of prayer and I'm praying in the Spirit, you're going to hear that fluent flow of the Spirit as I pray, and you're going to say, my God, I don't have that. Well, you know what? I've grown in mine. I've prayed. I didn't always, but I've developed it. Come on, somebody. There is a development of the gift in your life, and you become more familiar with it. I've proven the gift. I've learned to trust in it. Jesus said this. He said, come to me and drink. You got to come to him and drink. If you come to him and drink, he will pour into you. Come on, somebody. And then he will flow out of you the living water of the Holy Spirit. This is my belief today as I'm inviting the worship team to come back to the, all, to the, the stage with me because we're going to return to worship. I believe that there will be some here today that are going to receive of the Holy Spirit right where they are. Right in the middle of worship, nobody laying hands on you, you're going to receive. Some may not even receive this morning, but they're going to go home. They're going to be in the quiet context of the personal devotion time, and then they're going to receive of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But I'm telling you the thing that I've set my heart to pray for all week, and that is I've been praying, God, on whomsoever I, as a pastor, as someone who, is, uh, who believes in this experience, not in any way trying to replicate exactly what the apostle Paul did or who he was, but knowing that if God equipped him to lay hands on somebody, God can equip me to lay hands on somebody. That I can lay hands on somebody, and if you've got faith, you're going to receive. If you believe, then the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be filled with the Holy Ghost, and you'll begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. You say, Pastor, I'm new to your church. You're making me nervous. I'm sorry. We're not trying to make you nervous. We're not trying to put on a show for you. We're not fanatics. We're not crazy we're not we believe in a biblical experience that changed the life of the first century church and it will change your life as well we can't wish it for you we can't desire it for you, you got to want it yourself you got to press through the darkness and say god i desire more of you we sang a song a while ago aaron led us in it and said more of you lord i know you got good things i know you got a depth i know you've got a level i know you've been saved but there's more to the experience that you can have in god through the power of the holy spirit there is is but you we have to long for it now you as an individual you have to long for it but we as a fellowship have to facilitate it if I'm so worried about getting you out of here at noon nobody's gonna ever receive you know I could call a special Sunday night service and nobody will come so God gave me this time today and I'm going to say this very, very carefully, respectfully, not in any way, in a condescending way. But at the Cowboy Church this morning, they're not creating time at the end of their service for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. New Life is powerful a church and as good of all, all the good they've done since they've been here. They are not creating a time at the end of their service for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But God's called this church. He has. I remember that day, church family, when I went there at Cloverdale. And the Spirit of God came on me. And I was so moved in my emotions. And I realized God was grafting me into a fellowship of believers. As you've heard me say so often, it's much bigger than we are. It's much bigger. It's in over 200 nations of the world. People are worshiping. And they are a part of the assemblies of God. They're a part of it. And it, we're bound together. We're bound together by what? We're bound together, not just by the unity that we feel in this church, not just to, uh, because of benevolent act. We're not just bound together because we found a friend, but we're bound together by a doctrinal belief. We believe 
that God wants every one of you. You know what I prayed for my children today? You know how I prayed yesterday? And you know how I prayed the day before? And I prayed this morning in the prayer time that I want to encourage many of you to start joining me at 9 a.m. I prayed and I said, God, fill Ashley with the Holy Spirit. And some are, are baptized in the Spirit, but not all. I said, God, fill Amber with the Holy Spirit. I said, God, fill Alyssa with the Holy Spirit. I said, God, fill Anthony with the Holy Spirit. I said, God, fill Austin with the Holy Spirit. And God, my buddy Aaron, while he's in boot camp, hey, God can do crazy things. He needs it now more than any time before. He can receive it. It's my belief that the gift is for you, your children, and your children's children. I saw what it did in my own life. I can validate it doctrinally, but I can also validate it experientially. It changes your life. Say, Pastor, I prayed before and I didn't receive. Well, then continue to believe. Just believe. Trust the Lord. Come on, don't give up. Come on, don't give up. Set your mind. Believe. Know it's the will of God. And trust the Lord. Amen. You know, as I close and we're going to begin to worship, they're going to pick back up at that song. I thought about for just a moment, how come that sometimes there's a hindrance? Not only, there's a lot of reasons for hindrances to the work of the Spirit, people receiving. Primarily, it's unbelief, number one. Number two, it is probably doctrinal, um, incorrect doctrine that's been sold into your heart, which creates the unbelief. But I think number three, perhaps that hinders sometimes is that we are not in the climate, the culture, the created context. You know, God made us emotional people. I'm not saying that it's based upon emotions, but I'm saying that when your heart is worshiping God, you're vulnerable. If you're just sitting there cold and distracted and you're already thinking about, you know, getting out of church and all those things, then it's really difficult. You can believe in it, but you probably won't. I'm not trying to be full of unbelief, but I just know how some things work. But when you're in a moment of worship, it seems as if his spirit comes upon your vulnerability. He just, he just catches you right there. You're open. You're receptive. You've already opened your heart up. You're expressive. You're speaking out of your mouth. You're praying. You're asking. You're seeking. You're worshiping. It seems like if we can have those moments, then the spirit of God can come upon us. And I believe it needs to come upon you. Matter of fact, I was reading further into some of those passages, and I saw something that I've really never focused as much about. In all those instances in the book of Acts, it doesn't typically just say, and they spoke with tongues. It says this, the Spirit came upon them. Now, the Holy Spirit's already been given. He was given on the day of Acts, or the, in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. But these other subsequent recordings the Spirit still came upon them. You know what it's like when the Spirit comes on you? Even when you didn't speak in tongues, He came upon you at other times, right? Right? There are times He comes upon you and you might not necessarily, but you know what I, do y'all know what I mean by that? I don't know if you can totally capture that definitely and define it for people, but I'm just talking about when a, uh, a, a natural moment becomes spiritual. An unholy moment suddenly becomes, you're like, uh-oh, holy. You feel his presence. He's, I mean, Saul of Tarsus was on his horse, you know, riding towards Damascus when suddenly, right there he was. It was a holy moment. It was a suddenly God was there, right there. 
We, we need him to come on us. We have to pray, God, fall upon us. And we were singing a song, you know, Holy Spirit, fall, rain upon us, rain upon us. So today I'm going to ask that you just kind of remember what I started the service with, the pause button. You say, Pastor, the, somebody's phone's already beeped this noon. You hold me a lot longer than I meant to. I know I'm sorry. I can't apologize. You want something more from God, you got to be willing to work him into your busy schedule. You do. If you don't have time, then you aren't going to receive. You got to set aside time, set aside moments, and say, God, I desire these things. So, you know, I asked you to hit the pause button. I'm going to ask you to hit it again. When you hit it again, it's not going to go all the way back to the beginning, your heart, your expressions, your worship. You don't have to go all the way back and just kind of regather, but you're just going to enter right back into worship. And that measure of the Holy Spirit that was being released in, uh, in our fellowship, we're going to trust that He's present again. But I want to do something a little bit different this time. I want to ask more of you to come forward. You know, on Sunday mornings when we start worship, just a handful come down for worship. I mean, that, that's, you make the, you worship back there. But I want to say, I want to encourage you. Something happens with movement. And if you've not received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, in just a few moments, I want you to begin. If you desire, if you desire somebody to pray with you, if you don't desire that, we will not, we are not that, we will not run you down. We're not trying to force something on you. We're just creating the climate. That's my responsibility. Come on, isn't that right? I'm just creating the climate. But if you say, Pastor Brown, I want you as my pastor, like the Apostle Paul in Acts 19, to lay hands on me, then I want to lay hands on you in a biblical model, expecting that you're going to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I, my time is your time. I'm here. And others later, if they have to be dismissed, they can just slowly, gracefully go. And, and don't forget your children. We love them, but we don't want them. For the whole afternoon, you'll take them with you. But, but, but let's, let's create the climate. That's what God's called us to do. I really believe that. Don't you, church family? I believe that's what God's called this church to do. That's part of who we are. It's a part of our destiny, if you will. God needed a people in Heber Springs that would teach the rest of his people. You can receive the baptism.